Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. There are people who want to tell you the truth about themselves, and there are people who really, really don't want you to know the truth about them. They don't want to have conversations about the truth about you or them, right? A lot of people who seem uninterested in telling the truth, the second you are in a peaceful place and can say, the, tell the truth about yourself, without a lot of white noise around it or a lot of like a lot of the noise I'm making in this fucking interview. The second you start to do that, those people kind of blossom in front of you because they feel like now I can access, like finally here's someone I can really tell the truth to, you know, which is amazing. And then the less amazing thing is that when you do reach that level of comfort where you can make some people just come out of their shell, you sort of have this false expectation that, you know, you, you go through this sort of hazy phase. It's kind of like when you are in therapy and you start to feel your feelings and talk about your feelings. And then you kind of feel like you can just take that on the road and turn anyone into the perfect loving friend just by giving, you know, shining your compassion onto them. There's this feeling where you think that you're going to um, bring that out in everyone and, and the world is full of love and all you have to do is just connect with people. And actually, there are people who hate you more <laughs> the second you're you know, really happy. They're just like, fuck you. That was Heather Haverleski. I'm San Fragoso. This is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show.
Haveleski is a writer most known for her book, How to Be a Person in the World. It's a collection of essays taken from her beloved Ask Polly column, which runs every week in New York Magazine. In the writing, Heather has an ability to hear and see people in a way that feels selfless and genuine. There's no ulterior motive in her work. It feels rooted in human curiosity, both in others and in herself. There's quite a bit of competition in Heather's line of work. Take a glance at the New York Times bestseller list, and you'll notice that the advice and self-help genre has never been more popular than it is today. But Heather's writing has a different function. She offers what the New Yorker called existential advice. Most of her readers come in search of something bigger, writes the New Yorker. How can I stop myself from becoming bitter? How do I convince myself that I'm worthy? How do I handle the fact that the eventual death of the universe is making me anxious? In other words, Heather grapples with the big questions. For those who have listened to the show in the past, you may understand why I'd be interested in having someone like Heather on. For those joining us for the first time, I hope you enjoy our sprawling, sometimes existential conversation. Now, finally, here is... Heather Haveleski. Heather. Hello. Hi. Hi, Sam. How you feeling? Great. We have, uh, we just started talking now. This yep. is good. We haven't had an hour of you in my house chit-chatting. Oh, <laughs> uh, Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. It's really, really nice to be here in a brand new neighborhood in LA that I've never been to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For some people, they try to look it up on their maps and it doesn't come up. Yeah. It, uh, they get lost. The GPS is not updated to this neighborhood. Uh, yeah. It's not a, it's not a place that um, I've ever been. I've been close to here. Yeah. You lived close to here. But this is some kind of luxurious, special hidden neighborhood in Los Angeles that I didn't even know about. There's so many places I wanted to start, but let's pick one. You wrote a memoir that came out in 2011, right? Yeah. And it it was about, and I haven't read it, but I read the description of it. <laughs> but it was about uh, the sort of interiors of your family life and your upbringing. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess I want to start with this in that I'd like to understand what your childhood home was like, because I think it has to inform what you've become now as someone who is often giving advice and being supportive and constructive, but there for someone. So I guess my first question is long-winded, but was your household a particularly like open and supportive one? In some ways. And I do have to say that when you give people advice professionally, you're kind of showing up for them in your mind, right? You're, you're not, you're emotionally trying to show up for them, right? And you're creating, let's just call it, be pretentious and call it a work of art around their problem, mm-hmm. which is how I like to, <laughs> I don't always see it that way. You often describe it as a puzzle. It depends on the day and how, uh, where I, my viewpoint that day, how I see it. Sometimes I feel like it's about meeting someone emotionally where they are and connecting with them. And other times I feel like it's about solving the puzzle but that w- lies between the lines of their 
description of themselves. But I just wanted to say that most of all, you said being there for them. And I, I think there's an important distinction between being there for someone in real life and being someone who broadcasts a being their energy in an advice column. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? It's kind of, they're, they're two kind of wholly different things. So people might imagine me as a kind of nurturing type of person in a way, but... But then once they meet you... and But then, well, yeah. <laughs> and they see my, the, just the ugly face that I make when they start talking because I don't really want to listen to them. Um, no, that's... <laughs> I'm not really like that. I actually listen to people pretty well, but... But I am a writer and I do, I show up for a limited amount of time, which does segue nicely into my family life. My parents, um, you know, you asked, is it, was it a supportive environment? In some ways, similar to Ask Polly, it was like my mom. Limited. Yeah. In some ways, it was both. My family, my home life growing up was at once totally supportive and fun and present. And so for context, you grew up in Durham, North Carolina. Yeah. And your family is together until there's a divorce at age 10. Mm -hmm. So I was born in 1970. My parents got divorced in 1980. And they had a pretty tumultuous marriage. My dad was a character, which is kind of like a um, one way of boiling down all the different contradictory things that he was. Seems um, polite. Well, he was definitely in some ways something of a narcissist. I mean, he probably fits that in some ways. The the <laughs> To give you some indication, Deadwood, uh, Ian McShane's character, Swearingen, he actually looks a lot like Ian McShane looks a lot like my dad. And that character reminds me of my dad more than a little. Did you like that show? I love that show. So there's a, there's kind of like a, a complicated relationship that people who grow up with really interesting, intelligent, charismatic parents who also have really big flaws. Uh -huh. We have a really kind of conflicted relationship to, I mean, People with narcissistic parents have a conflicted relationship to narcissists. By the way, in that moment, you gestured to me as if to suggest <laughs> my parents are narcissists. That's really weird because I actually was making a guess in that moment that probably you did have at least one narcissist as a parent. But I don't want, you know, let's not do that to you and your parents at this time. No, unless... the, guess, the guess is correct. Oh, it is? Yeah. Awesome. Well done. Yay. I mean, I think I, I, I hate to say that because I feel like it's a common over um, simplification. Yeah. And also it's easy to experience your parents as narcissists, actually. You know, they're in. I realize that now. I mean, I'm something of a narcissist myself. Mm -hmm. I'm a writer. Most writers are a little bit narcissistic. And when you have kids, you're the king of the castle or the queen in my case. You know, it's you're in control. You get to make all the decisions that affect your kids. And when they say, I don't like this, some of the time you say, well, tell me more about that, you know, and other times you say, ah, that's really tough shit for you, isn't it? Because this is really my house and I'm paying for everything. And you kind of, you know, you get a vote 
But really, the times that you get to vote give you the false sense that you're living in a democracy when clearly you're not. You're a dictator. Yeah, I'm a dictator. I'm a tyrant. What traits do you think you inherited from your mother and your father? My mom is a really great storyteller. And you said this on long form. I heard this this morning. Yeah, I heard it. That's funny. I hope that I don't repeat myself, but I guess I do. Um, Did I just call you out for that? No, that's okay. That's okay. Most people repeat themselves like for the length of their entire lives. So um, that's life. Uh, but my mom, my mom was a great storyteller and she was very entertaining and also incredibly honest about her flaws. But you couldn't tell her about her flaws. She mm-hmm. could tell you about them. She'd often, if we had a conflict, come into my room and say, look, I know you think I'm being too bossy and that I'm, you know, and would tell me everything I was thinking and, and feeling. And then she'd say, but you know what? This is what I think about that. And then she responds. So it was almost like mini version of Ask Polly Mom. Mm-hmm. And then she'd be like, anyway, I love you. Good night. You know, mm-hmm. there was no, there was no space for me to actually say anything. In past right? conversations. Uh, but not, but that's not in all conversations. That's just like, if there's emotion involved, my mom is like a, kind of like a doctor. Right. Like, well, she, she would intellectualize them is what, what you've said. Yeah, that, that's yeah. the verbiage you use in the past is that she would often intellectualize her emotions. And the reason I'm bringing this up is, do you think that's something you've done in your writing? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, that's, she kind of taught me that language mm-hmm. of how to analyze really sticky, difficult things. But she used it as a, as a mode of deflection. I think I used it, I myself used it as a mode of deflection for years. And there's, I mean, look, the column that I write is it, 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 no one with a really healthy, relaxed childhood could write my column, (laughs) you know, because you wouldn't, you would never just put that much energy into slicing and dicing. That's a good sentence. These, (laughs) what sentence? What sentence? Uh, no one with a healthy healthy childhood. Yeah. (laughs) No healthy human being with their head on their shoulders correctly could write my column. Part of the fun of my column is the noise of the person generating the response, you know? It's like, I can understand and relate well to the people with these problems because I have a lot of them, or I did, or, Mm -hmm. you know. So having that, like, excess energy to analyze is something that I inherited definitely from my mom. My dad was much more... I don't want to say that he was more of an intellectual. That's just, people would probably describe it that way. But my parents were both very intelligent people. And in some ways, my mom worked harder for what she did in a way, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like my dad was sort of casually, arrogantly brilliant about a lot of different things. And would sort of, huh, that's what people think. But I think this, I mean, and all of his perspectives were, you know, take the mainstream view of something and then come out at a different angle, like, ha ha, no one understands that it's actually this, you know, blow it up. I I really wish my dad were still alive because his playful, he had kind of like a playful almost, and I always call it kind of sociopathic, but he was attracted to stirring up trouble everywhere he went. And in Durham, North Carolina in the 70s, that was actually pretty easy to do. Stir up trouble. Yeah, because it was like, you know, Southern towns are a little bit conformist and a little bit self-conscious. It's not like um, New York in the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. It's like 
smallish Southern town. People are a little bit like, ha ha ha, well, God bless his heart. That's so, you know. So he was an outsized figure in the town. He, it's, it, it's not that small a town. I mean, it, it, you know, it's a liberal place. Duke is there. UNC's close. It's, it's not like it's a that unsophisticated of a place, but I would say that like in 1975, like he would run down the street and people would yell at him, keep running hippie out the window of their cars. <laughs> um, so that, that to me seems like slightly backwards as a place, right? Even in the 70s, like people ran mm-hmm. Jim Fix, 70s. Did he have long hair, your father? He had kind of longish. I'm trying to think of like, Halt and catch fire level long hair, you know, like mm-hmm. sideburns right. and kind of, it's like the, the, I guess it's about as long as most people have their hair now. Like mm-hmm. most people kind of have that wispy longish men have that thing. You know, he totally wore those socks, tube socks with the color stripes. And he had like the Bjorn Borg headband. Anyway, so he cheated on my mom through the course of their entire marriage. He dated 23 year olds for Something like 30 years, including when he was married and up until the point when he died when he was 56 years old. And did your mother know about the affairs? Yeah, she knew. She knew before she married him that he would probably cheat on her, she said. And she didn't think it was going to. I mean, this is an indication of my mom's emotional landscape, right? She thought she could handle it. I mean, granted, this was a different time and place, right? But she felt like she was tough enough (laughs) To put up with it. And then she was surprised that it actually really hurt her feelings a lot. The fact that she, he was fucking other people the whole time. You know, it's like pretty, I, I mean, you know. That bothered her. Whatever. Yeah. So, but they fought and. Though it says something about your mom that two-pronged, that one that she could endure that and make it work. And two, that she'd even want that emotional landscape to be her own landscape. She said that she didn't want to be bored and she knew with my dad she would never be bored. And it's funny because I would say that one of my values as a writer is to never be boring. I don't think I succeed necessarily. I mean, I write 3,000 words about one person's problem, Mm -hmm. but it is... I find that I'm not generally bored reading your stuff. Oh, that's nice. But next time I come across boredom, I'll let you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just ping me. Send me a little text. I'll send you a little text. (laughs) Heather, um, paragraph eight, a little boring, a little, little boring, Heather. I actually say to my editor, please uh, alert me to any boredom that you feel, and we'll just take that part out. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Did that ever happen? She cuts things sometimes. I repeat myself. The thing is, it's tricky because when I'm really into response, it gets long and I repeat myself. So I have to go back. But if I stay into it, you mm-hmm. know, because I like it so much. And lately, I'm, I don't know, I'm really, I really like work writing this column a lot. Like, mm-hmm. I just, I read my stuff. I'm like, yeah. You you're, like it. You're good, Heather. You're, you're doing, <laughs> wow, I like this. The only way I, the only time that I felt that way in the past was when I was writing cartoons at the very beginning of my career. Mm-hmm. I would write stuff and I'd be like, God damn, you're funny. <laughs> But I write a lot of shit just to be clear that I read it and I'm like, no, this is not good enough and I can't finish it too bad. Has confidence always been an easy thing for you? I think this is why I wanted to write about my parents in that memoir. I go back to them a lot when I think about confidence and a lot of different traits I have. But um, I think that I, well, you asked if confidence has always been come easy to me. 
kind of, because both of my parents were exceptionally good at appearing confident. I think that we all have different layers of confidence and different abilities to be, um, you know, I mean, everybody is insecure at one level or another. My dad had a lot of bluster and he was kind of deeply emotionally insecure at the same time. I think I, I, although that seems like both of your parents were that. My mom had some bluster that was more kind of like in our household, like with her kids. Mm -hmm. She had a lot of confidence in her ability to raise kids well, actually. And she had confidence that she was, you know, that her values were in the, she had really good, strong kind of principles and values. And she felt that she was, she had confidence in her, in her mothering, you know, which I think is actually part of being a pretty good parent is like believing in your instincts and trusting them kind of, instead Mm -hmm. of like second guessing yourself. Believing that the thing you're doing is the thing you're, you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Or that, you know, you can make decisions kind of from the heart to some extent with kids and you trust that they understand where you're coming from. And But both of my parents, though, I'd say were a pretty interesting mix of very, very, very confident and very, very insecure. Mm-hmm. Like many narcissists. I mean, my mom wasn't really a narcissist, you know, just two really complicated people from very complicated families with some limited ability to calmly show up for other people. My mom has evolved into someone who can do that Mm -hmm. now, but she struggled with that a lot, which is a different thing than all the other good qualities that I described. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, calmly showing up for people is like, you know, that's like top tier, one of the hardest things. I think you're doing that in the writing though. I mean, the reason I talk about the confidence is that I was, I've, I've read enough of your work now to where when I'm reading it and after I'm reading, I think here's a woman who is curious about herself and other people, but at the end of the day is confident in her abilities and where she's at in her life right now. And I guess I was wondering. Yeah, I am. Very confident in my you, abilities. You like you like, <laughs> you like close your eyes strongly. I was thinking, do, do I respond to that? You know. Well, because my question. Yeah, my I'm qu- super confident in my abilities to. I'm a. I really like my writing a lot. I enjoy it. Obviously, I just talked for quite a long time about how much I love it. But I also, yes, when I write this column, I'm I'm like, I'm gonna fucking kick this out of the hit this out of the park. Like, I feel good about. But I've also been writing professionally for 20 years. I know. You know? Yeah. But. Do you ever feel like you have to put on a front of confidence because you are showing up for other people? And there are a lot of people who read you to feel assured, to feel, you know, that like their experiences are valid and not abnormal. Yeah. So I guess I'm wondering at times in your writing, at least, do you feel like you have to like feign confidence? Oh, no, no, definitely not. I, if I don't feel, I mean, I've written columns where I begin by saying, I don't know what I have to offer you. If I don't feel confident in, if I love a letter, let's say, because if I don't like a letter and I don't feel confident that I can help the person, I just don't respond to that letter, right? If I really love a letter, but I don't know how to respond to it, or if I love a letter, and I know how to respond, but I'm not really firing on all pistons and I'm not sure, 
you know, what to say. That's I reflect that in the writing. I try to really, I mean, part of my confidence in my ability to do this job is that I can, I feel very sure that I can bring whatever mess that I have inside and create something of worth out of it on mm. the page. So the times when I feel like, God damn, I'm good. Like that comes across in the writing, but there are also columns where my response is very clearly more vulnerable than that. I really try to work with where I am that day. Now, are there days that I start writing and I'm like, I don't have much today. I don't really love the sound of my own voice. You know, you're not yeah. bringing much to the table. Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I feel that way more often when I'm writing other things. I don't feel that way with a column very often where I'm just like, I don't know how to answer this. I have, mm, I go through stages where I kind of get into that, like where I'm like, oh, I'm hitting the wall again. But I, I haven't been in a stage like that in a while. I just kind of love, I have other harder things to write. So when I'm writing the column, I'm like, thank fucking God I can do this thing that I am good at, you mm. know? It cheers me up to even start writing the column because I'm like, yes, I know what to say. I also get so many letters that I can choose one that sort of speaks to whatever I've been uh, struggling with myself that week or that speaks to, you know, something that sort of is like exciting me in that moment. Mm -hmm. Like, or I can find a way to get to something. Like this week, I wrote about Jon Snow and... Uh, Daenerys, do you watch Game of Thrones? I don't. God damn it. But you're not even like contemporary, are you? You don't like anything contemporary except for people to interview that you like that are contemporary. Attack me you just a little bit more. <laughs> just a little more attack. You can take all this shit out. You know? No, I it's love fine. this. This is great. <laughs> but is, I mean, is, is I just this, knew you were going to say no. How did I know you were going to say no? I don't know. How did you know? Mm. You tell me. It was a hunch. Something about Montecito Heights <laughs> told me that you... <laughs> Does anyone in this house watch that show? Everyone. Oh, really? Everyone. In and this you house sit out. You sit upstairs. Mm-hmm. And what do you do while they're watching? Well, it's Sunday night. I work on Sunday night. You do. Yeah. You're editing something. I'm editing something. I have stuff I'm writing. Oh. Uh, Sunday night is, in my head, Sunday night is actually the, the trick that gets me ahead of people. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. I understand that. I always feel like it's like covert work. Yeah, yeah. I work through the weekend to get ahead of everybody else. Mm -hmm. Saturday, I try to take off. Oh, that's good. But it seems like that was a very specific attack to my <laughs> personhood about what I like. You think I'm... Uh... Um, You know, I don't know. Do you like... Let me let me pick something else you probably don't like. Okay. You probably don't like Arcade Fire at all. You probably don't like them. No, you're not into them. Does Arcade Fire like Arcade Fire? You're like, boo, Arcade Fire. I mean, they're just <laughs> terrible. <laughs> it's just confusing. How did I know that? Go on. Let's see. Who, me, what else do you hate? Give me a short hate? list. What else do you hate? <laughs> you don't even watch Silicon Valley. You know what? I have watched all of that. Oh. I've not, fin this is so specific now, but I've not finished the new season uh, mm -hmm. up to date. So you're not that, in you're kind of, you're okay with it, but you don't love I, it. I, I think that show was really good the first season and is now yeah. very mediocre. They had one idea for the season and they should have stopped there. Yeah. It's hard to stop, though, when you have a popular thing. Sure. I mean, on this point, mm -hmm. given your work as a TV critic and uh, this column, the Ask Polly column, you are engaging with the culture and, in turn, people living in this moment right now mm -hmm. more than most people. Do you feel like you're tapped in? 
Yeah. I mean, I have to think about people mm-hmm. of all ages, right? But a l- I definitely spend a lot of time pondering the the problems of people between the ages of 20 and, you know, 38. But also the interest of those people. Well, because I think about these people, you know, because it's like my really my job to worry about this, you know, demographic of people, I also do engage with the culture a lot on Mm -hmm. Twitter. I mean, I am also just because I've been in media for so long. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, you met me the way I kind of am and I hold myself like I sort of am a person who just sort of stayed a little bit student-y forever. Like I can't quite relate to, <laughs> I like so, I sort of can't stand professional life and the kind of like the way you have to be to be a professional, you know, just, just in the most superficial way, mm-hmm. right? Conversationally. I really hate mom culture a lot, even though like I like a lot of moms, you know, I am a, a mother. I have children. By the way, bold claim. Heather, <laughs> Likes a lot of moms. <laughs> uh, I know. It's weird. I really go against the grain. I mean, my parents were kind of like this. I'm a little bit allergic to any kind of like group, right? I'm just, I don't want to seem like identifiable as anything. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, what I, I think that's like a- you and your fucking, you know, Arcade Fire and Game of Thrones. Like, you can't stand the idea that someone might think that you just watch Game of Thrones with everybody else. No, no, no. I think we're talking about two different things here. <laughs> I think what you're upset about is that I'm a little bit of an anomaly. I'm a strange... I should like those things. If I watched Game of Thrones, I'm sure I'd enjoy it. I think actually what you're talking about is how I feel, which is people are so frequently trying to categorize, not just me, but other people. There's constant categorization. Yeah. And my... The thing is, when I wake up in the morning, I'm uninterested in that. And you asked me if I was a millennial earlier, and I I think I am technically, but I don't know what that means. And, and, and in fact, I'm uninterested in learning what that means because it, it signifies nothing to me. Well, you're allergic to it because you're... Because preconce- like, pre- preconceptions are unspecific. It boils hum- humans down to things that are wor- worthless, right. essentially. Which yeah. is what you're trying to do to me. You know, I mean, I think that a, a lot of the, the nastiness that I carry around inside of me is just like revenge at being like the way that I imagine other people seeing me, you know, like as a woman who's like, I'm 47, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I am. I would say at this point in my life, slightly paranoid about coming across as any kind of 47 year old woman, basically, like if, because what we, is stock 47 year old? Woman? We don't have a good model for what a 47 year old woman like how that person could be appealing, mm-hmm. right? Because it's like, what, first wives club? Like think of anything about a 47-year-old woman. That show with Sarah Jessica Parker, Big Little Lies. And I'm I'm kind of lighting on a bunch of like white rich women things, mm-hmm. which definitely isn't my demographic either necessarily. I mean, I am white. <laughs> and you have some money. Uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, you've it, done well. I, don't, I think we need not be modest on this. I think you've done pretty well. I mean, for a writer, I a do writer, make a living. You do pretty well. Better than 99% of working writers. I'm, you know, I do well in terms of I have options because people, you know, I have a steady job. 
People know who I am to some extent as a writer because I've been doing it for fucking forever. But it's not, you're not talking about giant numbers, even if you're in the top 1% of writers. We're talking about six figures. Um, yeah, this, this year I'll make six figures, but six figures is, is like, I'm just over the line. It's not like I'm making like, you know, 200,000, mm-hmm. making un, uh, well under just over, you know, a hundred thousand. Sure. Let's be specific. So I don't, you know, and that's only because I just finished a book and I'm writing another one too. Like right now I'm working on a unspecified project that's like a <laughs> that's a stupid way of saying it. Is that the title? I'm trying to write a TV script, okay, based on that book and trying that that let's just put all the emphasis on the word trying. But that's not like a big money thing. It would be if it turned into a TV show, but you mm-hmm. know, you know, that's like very lottery ticket level thing. I sold a new book that I got my first payment on and I got my last payment on this book. So that makes me feel rich, you know, because it, two books that overlap, you're like, yes. But it's also because they now pay you in four payments for a book. Like they don't just cut you a giant check, right? So, and I have a, a steady job writing this column. So I do have like a totally ideal mix of things at this moment. You're doing well. But I just want to clarify for the world that it sucks actually because not it doesn't suck for me. I have like the fucking dream job right now. But getting to a place where you even can kind of bet on your next five years is so rare, you know, to be able to say like, I feel pretty sure that I can sell a book after my next book. And I feel pretty sure that my column's not going to go anywhere because it is popular and I'm quite good at it. Like that's a nice combination of things that, but again, it doesn't add up to like, I'm swimming in cash, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm not like going on vacation a lot. (laughs) I dress like this. You dress nicely. Perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. I don't shop at Target anymore. Target sucks, man. Feels good not to shop at Target. Making big stances today. Target sucks. <laughs> I like moms. Though you are talking about something you've said in another interview tangentially, which is the culture right now and the people that we are breeding and the environment we're creating for people to live in is um, everyone is constantly thinking, I am X amount of steps away from giving a TED talk, is a quote you said. Oh, yeah. Uh, a few, I think in the specific, I don't know exactly, but it was like, Everyone's always thinking they're three steps away from doing a TED Talk or, or they're, they're constantly contemplating why they're not doing a thing they ought to be doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that you reach a certain level of success and people start to ask you why, you know, you're not going to be a brand on every front. Like, how are you going to peddle your product in all the ways that everyone who does anything remotely like you mm-hmm. peddle their product. Like, how are you going to become essentially this kind of miniature lifestyle brand? And I mean, I think for a lot of people, it's sort of like they make themselves into a lifestyle brand before they even are anyone offers to turn them into a lifestyle brand so that they feel like that's what they have to do to survive, like to in order to promote themselves. But there's also, for me in interacting with the culture on social media and observing it, I'm very repelled by that, (laughs) which is bullshit because 
like I said, I'm in this really comfortable position having worked for 20 years, just to be clear. I mean, I have paid my fucking dues in some ways. And in other ways, I've just had like beautiful success in a lot of different things and just an ease of movement between different genres. But I feel like there's a kind of cart before the horse process now where people want to be a brand before they even know what they're creating that is corrosive to the actual creative process. You know, it's corrosive to the development of a voice or uh, the development of a confidence in what you really have to offer. Do you think that happened with the rise of the internet or, or, or has that always been the case where people have done the cart before the horse? It's probably always been the case, but because I have always written for online publications, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of in the beginning, in like 96, when I was writing for suck.com, was it like, were people self? No, it's a, kind of a social media thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, authors have had author websites for a million years. Sure. But even those aren't really, it's not really that. It's sort of more like. It used to be more of an index. Yeah. Now it's sort of like, you know, I have a professional headshot on my Twitter page. I kind of do Instagram stuff that's basically professional. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of half. You hate that professional stuff. I just, there's something about like taking all of the kind of grossness of self aggrandizement that is built into social media and having a, mo- a financial motivation to like make your life seem prettier and cooler than it really is seems um, like incredibly, I don't know, damaging to the soul somehow. But whatever. I also just don't have the, you know, it just feels in- a little invasive, right? But you know, some people just naturally do that. Like they're just like, I'm hot. I take selfies and it helps my brand, you know, like that's, I don't know. I, I, anything I say about social media just makes me sound like a grumpy old piece of shit. Like I don't, I just have ideas about what it means to package yourself before you know yourself kind of, you know, like I just, I feel um, suspicious of that. And, you know, and as someone who's, I mean, frankly, susceptible to that kind of manipulation, because I think all writers and artists kind of are, susceptible to the sort of temptation to take their charms and wrap them up and turn them into something that might sell or make them popular. You mm-hmm. know, I was always kind of like a, a kid that cared about popularity. So when I talk about all this stuff, I'm definitely talking about myself. I'm talking about like my, you know, weak points. And I, and I also think that the things in the culture that make us the most kind of ill, it's just like, the traits and friends that piss you off the most are the ones that you won't allow yourself to engage in or the things that you're most embarrassed about yourself, you know? So the, the traits in the culture that make us the most angry generally are the ones that we kind of see as a reflection of our own worst impulses. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, what? Oh I, oh, I can't even talk about Game of Thrones. I was going to say, which character in Game of Thrones, you know, bothers you the most? And it's probably like the one that has your vanities or weaknesses, you know? Yeah. What are your vanities and weaknesses? Oh, they're just endless. I don't even, I, how can I even begin? <laughs> you well, give, know, it's give, like, give a short list. Um, you know, I'm a show off and, uh, I think that I'm right about everything. You know, that's like a, on a bad day. I just really believe that, um, I don't know that my, my 
way of living is the right way of living. I'm, you know, I'm very self-righteous. I think that shows in the column and the stuff I, the stuff I write. I tried to humble myself, you know, and what? <laughs> but I, what I'm, what I'm shaking my head at is that two things. One, you wrote today on Twitter, your true talents are inextricable from the things that make you extremely irritating. <laughs> and the second part is, you're saying you're self-righteous, but the people want you to be self-righteous. That's why they're reading your column. I know, it's so magical. They I'm want, so lucky. They want you to be the thing you don't like. And uh, you, I think you kind of like being the thing you say you don't like. Well, I'm kind of giving into, I'm starting to kind of give into it more than ever. Give into it. You just become a monster, you know, eventually. If people like you enough, God. Okay, well, a monster. I mean, that seems harsh, but. It's hard to be, it's hard to be popular. Like you just, you, you, it's so tempting to just be a dick, you know? Just also write that down. (laughs) It's hard to be popular. Whatever. It's hard to be a human being, you know, like popularity is, like I said, it's weird because there's sort of. I'm kind of trying to like take apart the perception of what it means to kind of be, to have a certain amount of popularity versus how it feels to be just an individual who can't possibly live up to anything, like anything that you put out into the world, there's no way to live up to it no matter what, right? No. Like you can cut together a great interview and people will be like, oh, that's Sam. He has good ideas and says cool things. And then they meet you and you're like, what are ideas? (laughs) You know, I have had this where a couple of folks who who I know listen to the show and they've told me they listen to it. I, I meet them for the first time and I always feel like I'm disappointing them. Yeah. I always feel like I'm not as emotionally present as I may appear on the show. And I'm like, God, fuck, they're never going to listen to the show again. But there's no way to be. No. I mean, of course there's no way to be. There's a bandwidth to all of this. Yeah. It's like if someone expected me to be yelling swear words, you know, and like throwing things. Is that your reputation? Well, you know, it's just like I have my dumb all caps, like, you know, swearing in my column. and. And also the confidence that comes across in the writing is different. You know, my real world confidence is highly, you know, variable. I am, you know, just a fucking 47-year-old woman, white woman, pretty lame. Oh, I'm not supposed to say that word anymore. Lame. I was told lame is not a good word. From whom? I think it's like a lame means uh, handicapped. What's the new word for handicapped? You can't even say handicapped, right? I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Handicapped? People don't say handicapped. Oh, you don't know what handicapped is? No, I know what handicapped is. Just because I don't like Arcade Fire, you think I don't know what handicapped I is? To, I have to say that every now and then I say, I do say a word and I'm like, oh God, not only do people not say that at all, but it's they can't even remember what I even mean. Mm-hmm. Like it's been that long. Can I say, <laughs> I, I, I want to put something out here. Okay. Um, I, You've commented on yourself, your age, and being a 47-year-old white woman three different times in this talk. <laughs> oh. And there seems to be... Maybe I'm having a midlife crisis, Sam. Can't you just let me quietly have my midlife crisis? Well, sure, though it's not quiet when it's on a podcast. 47 seems old. I don't know. I'm just like feeling like 47 is like past... past um Prime. I, you know, I don't feel past my prime. I think that's the, part of it is just that, like, I feel very good 
and, and young. Who is saying otherwise? Because there seems to be a lot of you're worried about how people are going to see you right now at this age, the 47 year old white woman. It's not even worried about, and it's not, when I say, I think people, it's just like what you said about your podcast. There's writing and creating and having so much confidence in what you do. And then there's the rest of life, which involves the wider culture, people you see on the street, you know, and the beauty of being an artist or a writer or creating anything is that you have some control over how you feel. You know, you have a relationship to kind of an imaginary audience and you get to feel right about the world in your own created kind of shell, right? In your own environment that you created. And then when you go out and do things that are in person, right? Like I'm doing right now. For me, just being an erotic person, there's a certain amount of just like conflict and and worry, not even worry. It's more like realization of the fact that, you know, you just don't have the opportunity to be as pure as the page. You know what I mean? Like all of your kind of like dipshitty day-to-day interactions, <laughs> you know, which are, I think, just as a woman, you know, probably as a person of color, probably as a man, you know, I mean, as as in anything in our culture, there's just a lot to be desired. People don't take each other as they are, right? And also the things that I leave the house for are like, my kid has to go to soccer practice. Mm-hmm. So I'm like the mom standing on the sidelines Right. There are a lot of roles that I have that are just like, this is strange. Can I read something for you? (laughs) Sure. You may recognize some of these words. Uh Uh-oh. Reckoning with middle age is not a small thing for anyone. The popular view that midlife crises are experienced mostly by cheesy old guys driving red Corvettes or sad real housewife types chasing their lost looks couldn't be more off target. It's much heavier and less easily explained than that. At some point past the age of 40, you start to face not only your own death and the death of everyone you know, but also the death of possibility. The future doesn't feel wide open anymore. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that there's a a good feeling that comes from that in terms of you no longer have this weird, grandiose idea that everything can expand infinitely in every direction. You can actually like learn to appreciate what you have, knowing that you probably won't have just like 15 times as much as what you have. And also, you know, like I live in this suburban neighborhood. This is the, about the time that I would be moving away from my neighborhood if I had the choice, mm-hmm. because... It's beautiful, but it's the fucking suburbs. Like, I don't know what I'm doing in the suburbs. Suburbs, I did not know what the suburbs were. And then I moved there and now I understand what suburbs are and why everyone's so obsessed with maligning the suburbs. It's not the city. (laughs) Very clearly not. And uh, I don't know. I, I think that I'm at this place where I feel better than ever, right? I'm less interested in having bullshit conversations than I ever have been in my life. But I also feel like I can actually help to meet 
people in interesting places and have good conversations for the first time in my life instead of just taking whatever the fuck they give me or blasting my own bad broadcast at them. And yet I find myself repeatedly falling into these like mundane kind of trivial conversations where I have an urge to say, let's talk about ideas. Like let's talk about emotions or ideas. Let's build something. Like I don't want to just be your therapist and I don't need a therapist. Well, I mean, I do actually need a therapist, but um, everybody kind of does, right? But let's not just do that. Let's actually see what we can build together. That's where I, that's just where I am as a person. I always have these battling impulses also because I have a lot to say, a shitload to say, and I love talking and I am kind of an extrovert, you know, although I spend all day alone. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, everything I do is very internal, but I also am extroverted, I guess. I like when you make yourself laugh. <laughs> you know, I have these battling impulses where I want to say a lot. And then I think, but Heather, you're fucking like an old lady. Like, why don't you shut the fuck up? Like, I'm very conflicted ab ab within myself about like, I want to put myself in my place a lot. You know what I mean? Like, and also, as a writer, you uh, writers just naturally address what the world thinks of them, kind of. Like, we anticipate. We're just naturally self-conscious human beings. So there's this beautiful life that you cultivate as an artist or a writer in your mind and in your kind of with close friends and in your life. And then there's the outside world that's just like, who the fuck are you? Who cares? Right. You're just some soccer mom. So because... Because I, you know, am actively engaged in these mothering things that are very public, you know, and those are my interactions with the world. And I have this very kind of, it almost feels like an intimate relationship with my readers and the page. I just, when the two things, when I do events and when I'm out in the world, there's a part of me that's like that the duality of that smacks me in the face where I'm like, wait a minute. I look like an old lady right now. You know, like there's a part of my mind that's just like, that's not cool. Like, because on the page, I don't feel old. I just feel like, and I'm, you know, I'm not that old. It's not like, you know, I'm some decrepit. I, I need to, it's almost like I'm at a point where I need to let go of my own ageist issues. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think that's what I'm getting at here. Yeah. That there seems to be some internal conflict that I imagine you've been, thinking about in the last few years that I think you can let go of. I, I don't know if it's As helpful. As a woman, I think, you know, I'm just at the point where, you know, I kind of, I, like, I like the way I look, you know, but I have to figure out how to navigate a world where I don't necessarily love the way I look. Like, I'm not, that's going to be interesting for me because I'm used to liking the way I look. And I, I think that, I don't think that every generation, I mean, I know that generational things don't interest you that much, but I, I don't think that all generations struggle with this shit as much as mine. I think mm -hmm. that I grew up in a very like looks oriented time. So, and you know, my parents are both pretty good looking. Like, I think I'm just like a little bit looks focused. And as much as I write about understanding your beauty and understand, like understanding like other people, I don't give, give a fuck about other people's looks. Do you find that you often take your own advice? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes. I don't think I'm the perfect embodiment of every bit of advice I've ever given. Let's put it that way. But that, I, I think that I'm, I, you know, that also sounds boring to me. I don't really want to be totally healthy and well. I sort of like conflict. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think I would talk openly about all this bullshit, which, you know, you're going to have to swim through that and cut some of that back, cut those weeds back. It's a little too much. You seem but, worried about that. Well, it's a, this topic is, I think, a little bit dull. Like, I don't, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm a, a little bit paranoid about like, you know, m- most of your podcast is like going to be about me, my feelings about being middle-aged. <laughs> that would kind of suck. Uh, this is a larger conversation though. And it actually has very little to do with you. Well, it's, it's there, you know, I think the one thing that your writing does, and I said this earlier but you read it and you're reminded that every problem, every insecurity, everything that makes you so upset and frustrated and scared about living, at your best, the column is a reminder that it's not isolated. Your problems are not isolated. And you being upset or frustrated or discontent about middle age, you are not alone in that. And there are people just as just as easily your age or people my age, myself, where I feel discontent at 22, that I feel I ought to be doing something that I'm not, that I should be someone that I'm supposed to be. I don't think the discontentment with where you are right now is just about you. Well, I think that what I'm trying to say, though, is that I am so content with where I am, but I'm not content with how to, um, I haven't decided how to bring it out into the world yet. You know what I mean? Like, I think that the way that I bring it out is not, it doesn't feel quite right. It doesn't feel like I can do what I'm doing now, Uh you know, 20 years from now. I want like a long-term strategy for interacting like I kind of feel like there are all these areas of my social life and my connection to people I don't know really well. You know, like I have a beautifully formed artistic and intimate life, right? And I have good friends. But there's something more about being engaged with new people and the public. And and it's not, it's not, I'm not trying, this is not a branding conversation. Like I'm not talking about like, how will I, how will I act on my speaking tour? Like if I ever talk anything about a speaking tour, like just go ahead and shoot me in the head. I don't want a life like that. But there's something about really connecting with people of all ages and being in an intellectual conversation with people and owning my own intellectual side, owning my emotional side, bringing a lot of the things that I've cultivated in my own life out into the outside world and daring to be that person out there in spite of the fact that I know that the culture isn't supportive of those kinds. I mean, I think there are people who can do that. I think that's kind of my next step. And that kicks off a lot of noise in my head. It's not that I'm not content with what I have. It's just that in conversation with people, I have some discontent and what I'm, it's like I'm trying to solve a problem about how to engage, right? in a way that feels really authentic beyond my 
safe sphere that I've created for myself. Like I'm actually, and this, this actually branches into something that I think is really interesting, which is I have spent my life so safe. And I think that I've created, I've learned how to be a solid writer and thinker in that safe space. But all of a sudden, I feel like, God, I need, I want to travel. I want to meet new people regularly. You know what I mean? Like I have this open approach to the world that I never have before. And it's sort of like, it's this crazy feeling because I've been such a hermit and so afraid, like an anxious, afraid person, essentially. And for the first time, I do not feel that way. Not only do I not feel that way at all, but like, I don't feel nervous, right? About, I don't know. Uh, you could say to me, I have a stadium full of people here and you're going to talk to them about your ideas. And I would just walk right in. Yay. I mean, it would be a terrible talk. But, <laughs> but like, you know, I just, I have all this insane confidence at this moment in my life. I, you know what it is also? It, another part of it is that I've always had this voice that's like, don't be too big, right? Like, I have ideas about vanity and how you're supposed to keep yourself small. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I'm questioning, like, how, how, what does that serve? You know, like, what if you were just. Can I tell you what it serves? What, what does it serve? Everyone else. <laughs> yeah, well, fuck them. I don't care about that. <laughs> right? I mean, fine, good. Then in that case, I'm going to be stepping on some toes. Right? Because. I'm a little bit bored by my like self-deprecating, compulsive self-deprecating thing. I am too. <laughs> <laughs> Not because I think you're boring, but it's the opposite. I think you're limiting yourself for reasons that do not actually apply to you. And that's why I'm kind of, I've, I've harped on this. Uh -huh. And now I sound like I'm like giving Should you a Should you have been talk. a therapist, do you think? Do you ever feel like your true calling is to be a therapist? Should you have been? I'm 22. Is that like I'm retiring next year? It's like, <laughs> ah, looks like you picked the wrong career path. Um, I don't know. What are some truths about yourself and people you've learned at 47 and in writing this column for as long as you have? I think the major, the main thing that I've learned is that I really, <laughs> this is absurd to boil it down to this, but I think there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who want to tell you the truth about themselves. And there are people who really, really don't want you to know the truth about them. They don't want to have conversations about the truth about you or them, right? A lot of people who seem uninterested in telling the truth, the second you are in a peaceful place and can say the, tell the truth about yourself without a lot of white noise around it or a lot of like a lot of the noise I'm making in this fucking interview. The second you start to do that, those people kind of blossom in front of you because they feel like, now I can access, like, finally, here's someone I can really tell the truth to, you know, which is amazing. And then the less amazing thing is that 
when you do reach that level of comfort where you can make some people just come out of their shell, you sort of have this false expectation that, you know, you, you go through this sort of hazy phase. It's kind of like when you are in therapy and you start to feel your feelings and talk about your feelings, and then you kind of feel like you can just take that on the road and turn anyone into the perfect loving friend just by giving, you know, shining your compassion onto them. There's this feeling where you think that you're going to um, bring that out in everyone and, and the world is full of love and all you have to do is just connect with people. And actually, there are people who hate you more hmm. <laughs> the second you're, you know, really happy. They're just like, fuck you. It's weird. And if you're really in a good place, you can witness it and it doesn't even make you mad. You know, it's just like, whoa, that's interesting. But it is disappointing, you know. I think that what I've learned through writing the column is that all of the worry that I did about how fucked up I was as a young person was such wasted energy because everyone is so disordered in this world. You know, there's so few people. And when you meet someone who's really healthy and calm, you know it immediately. It's almost like scary and you kind of want to follow them around and they can't be bothered with you, of course, because <laughs> everyone is following them around, you know? If you listen to, and I'm sure you've met people like that in doing this podcast. Have you met people who you were just like, oh, Jesus, uh, like yeah. next level? Impressed. Yeah. Just calm and they listen and they're almost like more curious about you than they are about talking. Totally. I've met that. Yeah, it's nice. I have this idea that Leonard Cohen was like that. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. Can you name someone who was like that on your podcast? Can you think of anyone who was specific? Or do you not want to insult the guests who weren't like that? No, you know, I thought Malcolm Gladwell kind of has his stuff figured out. Oh, interesting. Strange soul. Yeah, he's curious as, as his writing is, but I got the impression when I was at his house doing this it's calm. And it's something we talk about on the show is he, he he's reckoned with that and he's reconciled with himself. Was he always so calm? Seems like it. Oh, really? Seems like he, he even as a teenager, he, he kind of, he he's lighthearted. Oh. In a way, I certainly was not and am not. Mm -hmm. And most people I know are not. Yeah. I don't know a lot of people who are really present, you know? I mean, it's it's a little intense because you don't really, it's not like, whatever, smart people have a lot going on in their brains. Mm -hmm. It's not like people who aren't, who aren't present are like worthless, you know? Like, I'm not that present. I'm a jittery person. Very jittery. Uh, <laughs> um, but I also just drank some caffeine, to be fair. I mean, I didn't want to be somnambulant, you know? I am afternoon. Somnambulant. Somnambulant? Is that not a word? No, it's a great word. I, I was saying in the afternoon, you're somnambulant. Yeah, I'm like so, so fucking walking dead in the afternoon. I feel like once you realize, right, that people are just riddled with insecurities and I mean, there's also that put on kind of calm person mm -hmm. who's like guru-like, you know, but they're a little, you can tell that it's not really real because they're a little bit prickly but uh -huh. not in like a normal this is what i want kind of way but more in like an ego like 
their ego feels hungry, even as they're, you know, sitting cross, cross-legged on your floor. That kind of person? Yeah, I don't love those people. <laughs> Not for me. Yeah. So I guess, you know, what I, what I think that I've learned the most is just that everybody is pretty fucked up. And our culture's fucked up. And even if you were completely raised in the perfect way, the second you walk out of your house, the damage begins, you know? I mean, it's almost, like, easier to be a little prepared to be in, like, a boot camp where your parents are, like, fucking with you a little bit. So at least you know what to expect. You have some defenses. We've talked a lot about how you were in the past and how you are now. The book title is How to Be a Person in the World. And I guess the last thing I want to ask you you know, moving forward, what's the kind of person you want to be in the world? I actually just want to be someone who appreciates things as they are and creates space for other people to appreciate what is, however it is. That's my kind of like, you know, Buddhist (laughs) kneeling in a cave ideal. But another part of me kind of just wants to be, have more fun and be more obnoxious. You know what I mean? Like there's the ideal and then there's the reality of just like, I just kind of want to fuck shit up and, uh, (laughs) you know, piss people off and make people engage with me. You know, I just want to like see more of the world. Mm -hmm. Do you have any like wild opinions you want to throw out here before we go? (sighs) Wild opinions. Things that will make people pissed off. You know, I, I don't like to piss people off with opinions as much. See, that's like my critic phase. Back when I was a TV critic, I think it's a different developmental phase. <laughs> it's like slug, cocoon. I think that pissing people off by like challenging their perceptions of what they should be is sort of more what I'm kind of about. Like, I don't know. That, I'm making it sound more lofty than it is. Really, what I picture is just like dancing like an asshole at a party. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like my lost, my honest lost uh, calling that I'd n- never fulfilled was as like a comedic dancer, mm-hmm. not someone who tells jokes, but just someone who imitates different forms <laughs> forms of dance. Um, I have a talent for that. I used to imitate the solid gold dancers when I was a kid. I was really good at it. I still have a pretty good solid gold dancing maneuver down. So it's almost like what I what I really want is to just, um, you know, create more real fun in the world. That's actually my 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 one big goal. Well, Heather, next time we have people over at the house, <laughs> we always dance. You do? This is a dance party house? It is. Oh, my God. And uh, I'll make sure to invite you. Okay. I'll be here. And I hope you dance wildly and erratically. I will make a spectacle of myself. I can guarantee that. And you will not be happy that you invited me. Actually. You will fucking regret it. Can I tell you? Nothing would make me happier. (laughs) Oh. Heather, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks a lot for having me. It was really fun talking to you.
Special thanks to Angelina Venesina from Penguin Random House and, of course, to Heather. Her latest book, How to Be a Person in the World, is out on paperback and hardcover now. You can find her dispensing weekly wisdom in her Ask Polly column at The Cut. We'll include links to all that and more in our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. Our show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, social media by Max Ship. Our assistant producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Now, here's your listener question. This is from Angelica Jade Bastian. She is a writer for uh, New York Magazine and other places. She's, she's a good writer. I'm going to read this whole thing from her, even though she said, in bold are the main questions, but if, if you don't want to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read the whole thing for you oh, okay. to give context. Great. Just a paragraph here. Recently, I had the most important and amazing step up in my career, becoming a staff writer. But my happiness over this success I truly worked hard for was undercut by feeling as if I had no one to celebrate it with. I'm estranged from my only sibling. My mother and I have a tense relationship thanks to my bipolar disorder and other familial constraints that have left me wondering whether her love is conditional. I don't have many friends. Recently, someone I was becoming friends with said something incredibly cruel about my mental health issues. I miss having people I can depend on and who also feel they can depend on me. I want to feel like I matter to people in good times and bad. I support those I care about, but I'm not really getting the same support. I guess what I'm asking is, what advice can you give about not letting loneliness consume you, destroy you, and cause you to grow bitter? Is it possible to survive in this world without close ties, romantic and platonic? I'm more successful and stable than I've ever been before, but I've never felt more lonely than I do right now. Sometimes when you're building a life and you have a vision of what you want to be, you collect people who are almost like part of your vision board. They either have some of the things that you want or they seem to be less vulnerable than you are, right? They have a shell about them. They have a kind of casual cool about them. I feel like when you're striving to make a name for yourself, it's really hard not to pick up friends that kind of match that ambition to be a little better than you feel like you are inside. And when you're collecting friends that way as a young person, and especially without reflection on what kinds of people really serve my needs versus what kinds of people are sort of match my mom and are a little bit fair weather. Like I can't really lean on them. It's extremely common to have friends in your 20s that are a mirror or reflection of something a little bit jacked up about your relationship to your parents. In other words, you're attracted to people who have some qualities and flaws that your parents had. There's a point where you have to say, 
Now you've made it and you're saying, I need people I can actually lean on. Sometimes this happens to people when, like for me, my dad died and I realized that half of my friends couldn't even handle having a conversation about it. I mean, now it seems like so impoverished to not be able to talk about that. But you know, we were young. 25. Yeah. But other for other people, it's different kinds of disappointments and like, or, or successes, you know, where they realize, they take stock of their friendships and they say, I don't, you know, just as important as not being able to lean on someone is what she says, like, I don't know who to celebrate with. And, and it, part of that is like, if you have these kind of slightly competitive, cool friends, some of those people don't want to celebrate your mm -hmm. successes and, or they have some kind of cool idea about ambition isn't cool or, you know, working hard isn't cool somehow. Or they are just competitive with you and they have their own successes, but they can't fucking tolerate hearing yours. So, you know, it's kind of goes back to what I said earlier about finding people you can be big around is a big fucking deal. Like it takes a lot of trust to be a little too big around people, you know, but think of all the magic that comes from having a friend who really can be big around you and you can be big around them. And, you know, it's like, that's emotional. That's an emotional connection. Same thing with like when you're crumpled and all you can do is cry, right? Having a friend that can stand that and isn't just repelled by it is such so important. So part of, I think, her challenge is looking for friends that are very different from the friends that she has had made up until this point. And that means I think it's a mistake. You know, people do this with partners too, where they realize like I chase a certain kind of partner, but the partner that will actually fulfill my needs is so different than the one that I'm chasing. It's like I used to chase men who seemed a little better than me in some way, you know, and, and part of being to qualify as better than me, you had to be dismissive of me in a, at a certain level or with, withholding emotionally, right? I definitely had a thing for friends that seemed slightly cooler than me or, and yet I would walk around when I was younger and I'd walk around like, why do all these people not seem to see me, you know? And yet one of the criteria for hanging out with people for me was I only hung out with people who could barely see me, you know? So I think her challenge is to find, I mean, I hate to say test, but experiment with showing your friends that you do have a little bit more of your vulnerabilities, which probably doesn't come that naturally based on what I just heard. But then also look around and pay attention to the people who have a high tolerance for vulnerability and the people who are allergic to it. Because once you start to notice the people who care about the truth and the people who are allergic to the truth, you may find that everyone you know is allergic to the truth. I mean, it's possible a lot of really high-functioning, ambitious people in cities can't have a conversation about the truth. It's a very common thread among successful, urban, young, hip people that they are they, sort of like you, you, they might engage in conversations that sound like they're about ideas or sound like they're about the truth. But if you hit on anything touchy or real, everybody runs away or the, you know, people are quick to decide that you're a fucking weirdo 
because you say something a little too weird or vulnerable or too something. You know, there's a, it's like there are people who exist within like, don't be too anything. You know, that kind of, that's a very urban, like sophisticated urban place. Don't be too much of anything. Looking for people who are a little bit too much of something is a really interesting thing, actually. Like, I have a few friends right now that I talk to them sometimes and I think, this person is a little bit too much for a lot of people. Like, and I, it tests my limits sometimes. Like some of my new friends really like, they're not that polished. They're not really like, I used to know people that only sounded like, in some ways they were like hip talk show hosts, you know? They on, they would only sound in ways that they would only say, they wouldn't talk too long. They weren't long-winded. They were never emotional. Or if they were emotional, they would put, the, you know, insult themselves out of that. Or, you know, like nothing could ever be what it was. I feel like when you start to notice the people who are kind of really looking for connection, it's like if you go to a party and you think less about what kind of impression will I make and you think more about I am on a mission to find people, I want to find the people who care about having a real conversation and connecting. If you look through that filter, people kind of come out of the woodwork. Like all of a sudden you can really see people clearly and it's it's a new thing, you know? It's like a you have a whole different experience. You You do have to get into a mindset that's kind of like the antithesis of the mindset that I've been in while doing this interview, which is like you forget yourself and you just think about meeting someone or like you you think about, you know, going to where someone is and, and being where they are and like letting their things come out. Um, it's, it's tough for someone with a narcissist as a parent though, I have to say, because you can do that so well that you forget to show up yourself. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like you can just service people and you, and then you re, you wake up like 10 years down the line and you realize that like, oh, I didn't really get my needs met. I just kind of like, I facilitated because I know how to do that, you know? So whatever, there's a lot, there are a lot of different elements to this. I don't want to make it sound too simple, but I mean, it's, it's sad to feel, lo- I so relate to that letter. I feel like it's, it's really hard to feel lonely when you're doing well, kind of, because it's like, you don't, you, to have no one to celebrate with, it's such a specific kind of crazy thing. It's sort of like not a, not a scenario that is like, is sort of, examined by the culture that much or, or, you know, that we don't really think about. But I would say that if you get into the right space with yourself, where you feel like, you you know, first, where you feel like I do deserve friends who I can celebrate with. And, you know, I do deserve to feel good about my accomplishments. And I do deserve friends I can cry to. Like you kind of have to establish that first within your own private world and then you take that out and you say, I'm going to be a friend who someone can cry to. And I'm going to be a friend. I'm going to be the kind of friend who people can celebrate with. And you go out into the world looking for people, not looking for like great, amazing, impressive people, but actually looking for people who you can serve that to them. You know, you can offer that to them like as a loving sort of gesture. And then you see what comes back at you, kind of. Like when, when you approach people, not in an acquisitional way, the way you do when you're kind of needy and young and a striver, 
and you approach them instead in a way that's sort of like, oh, you just said something kind of vulnerable and interesting. Tell me more about that. And I know how that is, you know, like where you really look for a true connection. I think magic happens, actually. It's sort of like, yeah, you get right with yourself and then you go out into the world knowing. It's interesting because our culture doesn't remind us how important it is to be in the right mindset before we connect with people. You know what I mean? Like, it's easy to just, I'm just going to a party and I'm supposed to go and impress people. Right. You know, that's how we think too much in American culture specifically. Like, I'm, I am a living brand and I'm supposed to make everyone impressed by how great I am, you know? When there's so little there and there's so much, you know, in just almost being like a faceless person who's just like, I, you know, I don't need anything. I just want connection. I don't need a pat on the back, you know, from a stranger. I just want to meet in the middle. I think that was pretty good advice. It's hard to do. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to make friends. It's really hard to make friends. I think that people are be- worse at it now than ever in human history in some ways, <laughs> you know? People just are really connected to their phones and confused at this moment. I believe that. But it also makes you stand out when you actually, when you leave your house with like an open heart and you try to connect with people, you, you're kind of like the shining light, you know? Not everyone can do that. Mm. I think people don't value that desire to connect as much as they should when they're young, you know? Or anytime, actually. It's like, it's such a precious thing to see in another person. When you, when you recognize that in someone, it's just like this beautiful thing. You just want, it's like, it's like what we said about um, Malcolm Gladwell, strangely enough, that really is surprising to me for some reason, but it's like, you want to follow that person around. You want to learn all the wisdom that they carry around inside of them, you know? Mm. Alan Arkin. Oh, was like that? Yeah. Interesting. The most of all people. Oh, I couldn't think of it earlier, but now oh, sitting yeah. here. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. That's, I mean, I hope that that's enough, you know? It's like, it just sucks because, I mean, honestly, this is where I land when I give a lot of advice. I'm like, I, I do the best I can. And then I'm like, I hope that actually helps. <sighs> it sucks to be alone. You know, it sucks not to have friends. But everybody, whatever, everybody goes through times where they don't have enough friends. Mm-hmm. I went through a time like that about five years ago. It was fucking shitty. It just, it just happens, you know, out of the blue. You're just like, wait a minute, where are all my friends? And you have to dig the old ones up and you have to humble yourself. Heather, <laughs> thank you. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.